What a complicated movie for the just your second time making a movie. I know. If this movie wasn't confusing enough, we're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna complicate it even more. We're actually just gonna film this and then play it in reverse. This is so here's some confusing pots that I'll bring up and see if you can help. I me. need to rewatch this movie. <laughs> <laughs> this is a rare time that I have a rating higher than you. I feel like I feel like normally you have the higher rating, especially on a Nolan film. <laughs> and on this episode, we're going over the movie Memento. And we post new episodes every Monday and Thursday. And I'm Aaron. And I'm Andrew. And we're your hosts. We talk about movies, TV shows, comics, and more. Welcome to Backseat Directing. One, two, three. Action. That wasn't too bad. Uh, second try. We're, second we're doing try. it in reverse. That was pretty good. We, we didn't really even plan that. It was kind of like, hey, let's do this backwards. Yeah, and, and if you didn't catch that at the beginning, the reason that our opening was backwards is because we're covering a movie called Memento. It, it was Memento, right? Hold on, let me check. Yep, uh, podcast on Memento. So we're... <laughs> it's that written in your hand. <laughs> because, like Leonard Shelby, sometimes you need a little help with your memory. Oh, so this movie man. is highly based on memory, and there's going to be heavy spoilers ahead, so I hope that anyone listening has already seen it, because this is a really interesting, really cool movie. Uh, it kind of has this avant-garde approach to filmmaking that is a little bit different, feels a little bit more independent. Uh, it's only Chris Nolan's second movie ever, so I think he had a lot more uh, just hunger to do something different. What a complicated Which he doesn't seem movie. to have lost. What a complicated movie for the just your second time making a movie. I know. It's unbelievable. It's such a stretch and like he didn't hold back at all. And like it's, just the jump from production quality from the first one to this one is like enormous. Yeah, and this movie doesn't really it doesn't treat the audience like with any favors, doesn't treat them like a child. The movie is just confusing. It's just yes. figure it out. Yes. Um, if you're if you're not familiar with Memento, uh, it's I think it's good to explain this early on. The movie is is filmed where if you have your scenes numbered from one to five, you get scene number five first, and then you play scene four, and then scene three. And it also kind of works like uh, I I would describe it as two rivers that are flowing towards one another. There's scenes in black and white that are traveling forwards in time and scenes in color that are those scenes five, four, three, two, one traveling back in time until they collide at the ending of the movie and they meet and then the story goes forward from there for the final scene. Yeah, the way Christopher Nolan explained it is kind of like this hairpin loop. So the end of that loop- It's a pincer, both, it's a temporal both, pincer. Yeah, when both lines meet here, that's the ending of the movie. And then the start of the movie is going forward. And the, this part is going backwards, but they're meeting at the same points and they jump back and forth between which scene you get to see. Yeah, and all of this, and, and they use the black and white versus color to help you tell which timeline you're in, which is a really cool trick. And this is all kind of, I feel like, almost an Easter egg for a movie he's going to make like 20 years later called Tenet, where they use something called a temporal pincer because there's reverse entropy in Tenet where people are traveling backwards through time while people are traveling forwards through time and they meet up at one point. So it's, it's, he, he loves to play with time as a director. We also didn't mention the parallel story that's going in chronological order with this other uh, couple that had the same like brain trauma that he did the jenkins yes so there's a lot of storylines plots chron chronologically reversed order there's a lot of things happening all at once yeah and the the jenkins couple um that individual sammy jenkins is actually based off of a true medical story there's this famous patient that's only known by the initials hm because you can't use patients legal names for obvious reason so hm is like this famous case of a patient who had this condition of memory loss and um, he just like sammy jenkins he was able to retain certain skills like he couldn't generate new memories but he could do things he always knew how to do before the injury, like the way Sammy Jenkins can give insulin to his wife. Yeah. Um, but this is also the character that Jason Bourne is based on, the same way that Jason Bourne loses his memory, but there's ingrained skills in him, like the ability to tie a knot or to 
know if somebody can handle themselves in a fight. He knows where to look for a gun. Yeah, he all these kinds of things. At this altitude, he can run a half mile for at <laughs> four <out>. minutes flat. <laughs> yeah, the, all these things that he just knows, despite the fact that he doesn't remember learning them. The right. inherent skills are that's all both based on this like patient, this yeah. famous patient. So we're we're gonna go kind of like our intro title. We're gonna go through our episode in a backwards order. Just to confuse everyone else, a just little like bit our more. boy Nolan, who we love to death. If the movie being artistic, if this movie wasn't confusing enough, we're gonna, we're gonna complicate it even more. We're actually just gonna film this and then play it in reverse when we post it and we publish it. It's like I think the audio is broken on this one. Nope, that's just just the way it goes. I can't understand a word they're saying. You have to travel back in time while you listen to it to understand Ooh. it. Dang, that's pretty. That's pretty wild. So. Our last category that we normally talk about on this show is a category we call Backseat Directing, which is the name of our show. This segment is where we put ourselves in the director's chair and we give our two cents of what we think about the movie, what we would keep and what we would change. So, Andrew, what what were you thinking when you watched this movie of how what, what would you keep? What would you change? What would you think? So this is definitely um, a second viewing movie like the, when I first watched it when I was in high school or middle school, I watched it again the next day to kind of look for the things I missed. And watching it again now, you know, years and years later, um, still there are parts where I get confused. And I wasn't able to watch it all in one sitting, which doesn't help either. But I think the movie definitely lends itself towards complete 100% focus, watching it all the way through in one sitting. And I found myself at certain points pausing it, rewinding to the previous scene, trying to catch myself up. For that reason, my backseat directing critique or my con, no matter, despite how much I love this movie, would be I think it's just a tad too confusing. And I think it, I don't think it being confusing is a negative. I just think if it was a little bit more straightforward and maybe also answered a little bit more questions, these are things that I normally like in a movie. So I'm qualifying it with that. I like leaving open-ended questions. I like the interpreta interpretive nature of the ending of like Inception. That's another Chris Nolan movie. And I like a little bit of confusion like in Inception. But I think Inception toes the line a little bit better. He's a little more experienced as a filmmaker, whereas I think Memento kind of left me a little bit too confused, a little bit too many questions. And the more I think about it, the more I just think, oh man, that, I mean, I think Teddy's lies kind of make the movie a little bit confusing where it's, it could be anything depending on what you believe, which is cool, but I want there to be something where it's like, there's options, but I believe this for this reason. And there's just a lot yeah. of avenues. What, what about you? I feel like just answering the question at the end of the movie of like, why this is all happening a little bit more, kind of like you said, clarity a little bit. But I liked the how the mystery like unfolded. Like I liked the time structure and how they went through all these different timelines. So that's not what I'm trying to take away. But just at the end, just having maybe something that's a little more concrete. I can't wait to post this because I can already hear the commenters calling us simple for wanting things to be more clear. Yeah, They're like, well, go watch Transformers then. You know what? <laughs> I will. <laughs> but not to be taken away from the fact that we both were blown away by this movie and we both loved it. Oh, absolutely. Um, it was... I think I think because there is a lot of questions, it raises the rewatchability factor for this movie. Um, it's like a teeter-totter, right? Like if it's too confusing, people are like, oh, that was, I'm just going to not touch that. But if it's like just confusing enough, you can watch it again, but still have this experience as if you were watching it for the first time again. Yeah. You know, because... There's a lot of mystery movies out there that you'd watch. And now that you know the punchline, now that you know, like, what's going to happen, it's not the same watching it the second, yeah. third, fourth time. Knives Out will never be the same on rewatch. Yeah, exactly. That was a great first time viewership movie. But then this one, I could watch it two, three more times and still, like, be figuring out pieces that I missed this one time. I've only seen the movie once. So I still have a lot of questions floating around in my brain of, like, what actually happened. I definitely missed some things. Yeah, it's and even upon rewatch when I was like looking for certain details, I mean, each scene that I'm going to go into my pros for my backseat directing pros. I would say the style the movie's filmed in with the scenes in reverse order is just brilliant because mm -hmm. 
although that part in itself is a little confusing, it creates this reverse order mystery where every second of the movie, you're still wondering how something happened that's already happened. So you're, one, you're looking to get back to wonder how he got the scratch on his cheek. Where did the gun come from? You know, um, yeah. well, why is the car's window broken? All these questions that he, he's um, just as much a mystery to him as it is to you. When they yeah. open a new scene, my favorite scene in the movie is when it opens up to him running and you're as an audience member wondering why he's running. So Leonard says... What, what am I doing? Okay, I'm chasing that guy. And he goes after him, and the guy pulls, Dodd pulls out a gun, shoots at him, he turns around, he's like, okay, he's chasing me. <laughs> like, the the nature of the story puts you directly in Leonard's shoes, because you're at the opening of every scene, you're just as confused as he is, not yeah. knowing what happened before. But it's really cool how the, the flashbacks, or flash forwards, I guess it depends on how you look at the timeline, how they kind of overlap. So you get to yes. rewatch what you watched earlier, but you get just a little bit more information in front of it. So now you're like, ah, that's what happened right there. I understand. Like when he woke up in the bathroom. Fun fact about that. They actually, to show, which is a big theme in this movie, to show the subjective nature of memory, they would actually often, for those overlapping scenes, use alternate takes of the same scene to kind oh, of show it a cool. little bit of difference. Yeah. Isn't that so that's smart? So cool. many creative flares on this yeah. movie. Beautiful. That's really neat. Um, yeah. I, I would say that that's a pro for me as well. It's just the, the structure of the movie. I mean, it's so complex. I like that. It's really cool. Um, how, how do you make something like that? That's what I kept watching, thinking about when I was watching this. Like, how do you like keep this story straight in your brain? And in an interview, Christopher Nolan said he wrote it the way that it's presented in the movie. Like he didn't write it in chronologically and then move the pieces around. You must have to go back after that or you have an intention for the next scene already because there's right. just so many of those little touches of when, especially yeah. on rewatch, you'll see. I'm sure he like had an outline. Yeah. He kind of knew where he was going and yeah. stuff, but still. You know, like, but it's little, really little things even outside the main story. Like when he tr takes a drink out of that free beer and then the guy at the bar is already laughing, you're wondering why he's laughing. Mm -hmm. um, there's all kinds of stuff like, or when he's talking to um, uh, Moss's character, um, Natalie, after when he's talking to her on the couch, he like looks at his hand. He's like, "Ow, my hand hurts," because he had punched her in the face the scene before, but he doesn't remember hitting right. anyone. Yeah, I I liked it how like the further you go in the movie, you're like, "Oh, are they going to answer this question yet?" And it's like, "Oh no," but I got the answer to this. And then like it keeps going. It's like, "Are we going to find out how he gets that scar now?" You know, like some of it you can yeah. miss. Like I, that's some of the things I was rewinding for was like. In the hotel room scene with Dodd, I was like, all right, when did he grab this gun? Was it just sitting on the bed there? Mm -hmm. And I think he gets the scratch on his face when he tussles with uh, Jimmy Grant's when mm -hmm. when he when he fights him, which is chronologically at the beginning, but at the end of the movie. Right. Yeah. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, our next... Do you think, before we move yeah. on to another category, do you think, while we're still talking about it, that this is the most confusing Christopher Nolan movie? Um, I don't know because I've, I've only seen interstellar once and the only thing I can remember about it is how confused I was. So, but I mean, that came out in 2014, so I haven't seen it in almost 10 years. So the, the I think the further I get away from watching it, the less I like can remember what happened. So the less confused. <laughs> yeah. So I, I would like to rewatch that one. Um, but out of the ones that I do remember and can understand and stuff, uh, I would say so. Yes. The contestants have to be Memento, Interstellar, Inception, and Tenet. Yeah. I, I mean, maybe maybe Dunkirk as well. Yeah. Um, do you think it's the most confusing? I think it probably is. <laughs> Tenet, Tenet is pretty confusing. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen Tenet yet either. I'm, I'm right now working through all of Nolan's films in order that they were made. Uh, so much fun. Such a good so, idea on your part. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to kind of see like the evolution you know, like yeah. it's kind of like watching a franchise, you know, like I'm watching the first rendition and the second and third, but each movie is like a different story, a different genre, a different, you know, like, yeah. so it's like re a refreshing thing to binge watch because it's not all the same, you know, like I'll try to rewatch the Pirates movies or something. And even though I love them, when I watch them all in order, I always end up stopping at the third movie, whether it's in the middle of it or right at the end, or maybe I just don't even start it, but I want to rewatch that franchise so bad so I can watch the fourth one and remember what happened in all the other movies. Mm -hmm. But like, since they're all the same, I get burnt out of them watching them back to back to back. But I've been hustling through these, you know, I've watched three or four of them in a week. Yeah. I think that yeah, thanks to you for like the inspiration for this episode, because of you doing that is why we're covering Memento. And yeah. this is a movie I was excited to rewatch for sure. Um, was this movie as good as you remembered it being? 
I think it was better. I think I'm more equipped yeah. to appreciate it now just after some watching so many other movies and like looking yeah. in more into what makes movies. Yeah, because I've never really heard you talk too much about this movie before. And I know I knew I liked Nolan. it. Yeah, I knew I enjoyed it the first time, but it was the kind of movie I was like searching online afterwards, like memento explanation, then going back and rewatching it the next day. Like, yeah. So it was definitely enjoyable to watch it. Now, what's our next category? Our next category is a segment we call source code. And this is where we dig into the original content that this story is drawn from. Uh, so a lot of times it's a comic book for a movie that we're watching, but this time it's something else. So in this case, it's a short story. Um, it seems like the inspiration for the story, the short story and the movie both came up, came to be when Chris Nolan, the director, and Jonathan Nolan, who I believe is mostly a writer, uh, they're brothers. They were on a trip together, like on a vacation, and they kind of storyboarded this idea, this concept. And Jonathan went on to write the short story and... Uh, Chris went on to make the movie and Chris wrote the screenplay. So when Chris wrote the screenplay and made the movie, he gave Jonathan a story by credit. So you'll see their names both listed on as writers, but uh, Jonathan went on to make the short story called Memento Mori, which is was really interesting. You can listen to it on YouTube if you search Memento Mori uh, audiobook. It's the first thing that comes up and it'll be Jonathan Nolan himself reading the story. I actually really like his voice. He sounds like Bradley Cooper. <laughs> I thought that like his voice sounded really good reading the story. Uh, it's an enjoyable read. It's relatively quick. It's just a 30 minute story. You can listen to it on a car ride, but it's quite different. The main character's name is Earl instead of Leonard Shelby. Earl starts out the story waking up in a hospital bed in like a white room, like basically an asylum. Um, he has um, pictures of his dead wife there to remind him that she's dead. So his memory seems to like go precede a little bit further than Leonard's. He doesn't like Leonard inherently seems to know that his wife is dead and he understands his condition and remembers his condition. Whereas Earl has like these little notes reminding him that his memory's lost. You're in a hospital, your wife's dead. And the story for Earl just moves forward. It's, but it takes these big time skips and everything is also very subjective in nature in terms of memory. It's like, he says, perhaps this, perhaps that, like at one point, basically the, it moves forward in time from him being in the hospital and it insinuates that he escaped the hospital to search the killer. He's a tortured, Earl's a tortured character the same way Leonard is. The earliest, the, the only memory he has to hold on to is the memory of his wife being murdered. So like he, like they say in both movies, without time, you can't really heal. They say time heals all wounds, but both Earl and Leonard they don't have a luxury of time going on. So all they have is like this rage, regret, depression. They don't have, they can't go through the stages of grief. So mm -hmm. they're, it's super tortured character. One of the most tortured in fiction because they're forced to always relive basically being in the day after the death of their most beloved person in the world. So Earl goes on this mission for revenge or revenge. He knows he won't even remember. Um, but he's, he says in one line in the short story, like the only way I'll be able to remember it is writing a note and keeping it in my pocket that I've already done it. And so he escapes the hospital, it seems like. He stays in a hotel and he, he wakes up there. He looks older. He's more tan. His hairline's receding. He's working on the mystery, getting the police reports and everything. He seems to be getting closer. And then all of a sudden, later in the story, he wakes up with a dead guy at his feet, matching the description that he had for his wife's killer. Um, and then after that, he wakes up, he's in a car and he says like, He's trying to talk to the person. He says he's trying to gather his things out of his pockets. He says, perhaps it's difficult because my hands are cuffed, like perhaps not. And then he says he tries to talk to the person in the front seat. They don't respond. Perhaps it's the cabbie doesn't speak great English, or perhaps it's a cop who doesn't make good habit of speaking with suspects. And so I think it is again, open to interpretation, but it seems like he's, you know, found his wife's killer, gone to jail now for the, the murder of his wife's killer. And the story just kind of, highlights the subjective nature of memory, the subjective nature of life and time. Um, and it's like this big philosophical concept that's mostly in the format of like a limited third person soliloquy where he goes on and on about like philosophical nature of time and less so about like action and plot and mystery and the story moving forward. Yeah, time's a unique thing. Um, but that whole summary kind of transitions us really well into our next segment, which is story breakdown of the actual movie. Again, we're going in reverse order of what we normally do. Um, now, we're not going to sit here and summarize the whole movie, but what are some pieces of the movie that you want to talk about specifically that maybe we haven't already brought up? I want to hash out the mystery. If somebody right. listening to this is thinking like, man, I watched that movie, it was super confusing, 
they're saying it's open to interpretation. What are the interpretations? I want us to like go over our interpretations of it. Yeah. And I think that the best way to do that is to go over the kind of like the ends, like as if the movie was a palindrome, like the, the ending and beginning of the story. Um, and you, and, and in the, what we're going to be talking about through this is the death of Jimmy Grant's and then the death of Teddy, who we think it was John G. And I think another big question is, is any of this like his actual memory? Because the story also insinuates that Sammy Jenkins and Leonard Shelby are one person. So walk me through your interpretation at the end of the movie. Did you have one that you picked to be kind of the truth in your mind? I think I kind of was more confused <laughs> than actually having a solid pick of like this happened. Because it was like, okay, so did he kill the right guy? Or did this all not even need to happen in the first place? So I think I was a little bit lost on like maybe where I was being pointed to. And that's why in my backseat directing segment, I was saying that like the ending could be maybe a little bit more clear. Because even though I watched it last week, I'm still having trouble remembering exactly what happened because <laughs> he doesn't even remember what happened, you know, so... Um, but that's a key point in the story is like that memory is subjective. Like the, I think if you look at it different points in the story, there's a picture of Jimmy Grant's and in one picture he has a mustache and another he doesn't. And then later in the movie he has a mustache again in the picture just to show like film is kind of like a memory, like a recording is kind of like a memory and a movie is kind of like a memory, but the movie we have an unreliable narrator in this story. Our narrator is Leonard Shelby. He's unreliable because of his memory, because of his disability. Mm -hmm. So everything we see isn't necessarily the truth. It can be misleading. We see a shot where Sammy Jenkins is replaced with Leonard Shelby for just a frame, like in a Fight Club-esque single moment suggestive shot. But to me, ultimately, that had me debating, but I think I came down to um, Leonard Shelby sees a lot of parallels in his situation with Sammy's and that they are not the same person. So just to like go over the overarching plot and then we can talk about who is who. Um, Leonard Shelby is the, our main character played by Guy Pierce. He um, had a tragic incident where his wife was raped and murdered. They, they, he went, and this is all perhaps, this is all supposedly, he goes into the bathroom, shoots one of the attackers and the other one bashes his head into a window and escapes. That head injury leaves him with anterior grade memory loss, which is he can remember everything up until the point of the head injury. Perfect. Not, not necessarily perfectly, but that memory is not tampered with. And then his memory beyond that point, he can only hold memories as long as he can keep them in focus in thoughts and then poof, they're gone. So in the, in the memento mori, in the short story, he says, I can hold on to a memory for 10, 15, maybe if I'm lucky, 30 minutes. Chris Nolan says, Guy Pierce's character, Leonard Shelby, can hold on to a memory as long as he's keeping it in the forefront of his mind. Um, so you'll notice in the movie, like when he starts to lose attention, like when he's sitting there, when he's get, when he's getting ready to attack Dodd um, in the bathroom, he grabs a drink, he grabs the 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 liquor for a weapon, mm -hmm. he sits down on the toilet, and then when he sits down and kind of rests, like all right, I'm in my position, I'm on my stakeout, he rests. That's when his memory resets. Like if his focus is distracted by something, that's when his memory tends to reset in the movie. He's looking for a pen, looking for a pen to write down about Natalie in the one scene. He hears the car door slam and he goes, oh, she's coming back inside. Coming back from that thought, memory's gone. So that's kind of what we're dealing with with Leonard Shelby. And we uh, we get at the, the, the long side of his story through these like flashbacks. He tells the story of Sammy Jenkins. Sammy Jenkins, similar story. He had uh, brain damage and he remembered how to do things before the accident, like how to give his wife her shot for diabetes. Um, but he doesn't remember, he can't keep new memories. It keeps refreshing. So his wife gets frustrated with this condition because of Leonard Shelby's character, the insurance agent, who says that it's all mental. It's not physical. He can see something in Sammy's eyes that looks like recognition. And if he can recognize him, then it's just a mental thing that's built up in Sammy Jenkins's mind. And when he proves this through a series of tests with using electric shock and pattern recognition. He, he attempts to prove that it's... Um, he's still all, capable of learning through instinct. Yeah, but he's not able to learn through in, instinct, so then he presumes that he's, fa he's faking, because people should, in that case, be able to learn through instinct, even with the loss of memory. And 
He denies the claim. This sends the wife spiraling. Mrs. Jenkins attempts to test Sammy Jenkins by really calling his bluff, she says. She uh, asks him to come and give her a shot for her diabetes. And then a second later, she says, oh, Sammy, it's time for my shot. But Sammy really can't recall new memories. He keeps coming back, giving her the shot over and over again. No one's that good at yeah. acting. Come on. <laughs> you, wouldn't, you wouldn't kill your... He, Just she, every single day, like, yeah. going through, like... Why would anyone even do that? In yeah, the first I think place? I think the point wasn't so much that he was acting, more so that it was mental, and if it's mental, it can be overcome. Right. If it's physical, it's it can't. Like snap out of yeah, it. and she thought she would force him to break in order to save her life, but mm -hmm. then we come to realize Guy Pierce recognizes now that he has the condition, or Lemon Shelby. He says, "I realize that that recognition in his eyes just because you fake it." You see someone, you expect that you should recognize them, so you act like you recognize them. It's what normal people do when you forget somebody's face, or I shouldn't say normal, I should say somebody without uh, this injury. Yeah, it's what, even now, like when yeah. I have my full memory, you know, yeah. if I recognize someone, it's like, oh, I don't remember your name. But you show that, recon yeah. yeah. Even if they just say, oh, hey, Aaron, and you don't recognize them at all. Oh, say, hey, what's hey, up, how's man? It going? Yeah. How's it going, bud? It's good, man. Thanks. It's good to see you, man. <laughs> but so that store, that explains both the things that we need for the setup for who is John G., Jimmy Grant. So um, for whatever reason, through the police reports, Leonard Shelby, he knows people in the police department. He gets access to the files from his wife's murder. He and then he ta he uses tattoos and notes and lists and a regimen and patterns to keep himself on track for his life. He says at one point in the story that he needs a mission. And that, that's what Sammy lacked was a mission. He needs something to give him drive and focus. So he has these tattoos all over his body that say, John G. raped and murdered your wife. Fact one, male. Fact two, white. Fact three, drug dealer. Fact four, license plate. All these things to keep him on track on his mission so he doesn't forget. He's got a tattoo on his top of his hand that says, remember Sammy Jenkins, to help him remember his condition and understand his conditions. That's something he can connect it to from before the accident. So then at the beginning of the movie, end of the story chronologically, we see him uh, get this paper that shows that, um, that Teddy's name, Teddy is somebody he has a picture of that he knows. Teddy's actual name is John Edward Gamble. G or John G is what he's thinking. It matches the license plate he has tattooed on his leg. It matches the physical description. So Teddy pops up and he takes him out to this abandoned location where he he asks he asks Teddy to beg for his wife's forgiveness, which is interesting. An interesting detail that shows maybe his condition is mental and not physical because Teddy at a, a previous point in time, Teddy or or Gamble had said to Leonard, "Hey, make this guy beg, and then he goes on to make him beg. So is that not a hint of his memory surfacing there a little bit? You know, that maybe it's mental, that maybe he actually can remember these things? Yeah, I don't know. So there's these, there's a lot of little details in this movie, especially that you can miss on an early first viewing. But he takes Teddy out there and shoots, shoots Teddy slash John Edward Gamble slash John G. He thinks is the person who murdered his wife. Um, I think not necessarily so. Because um, at the very beginning of the movie, before his memory, at the very beginning of the story chronologically, but the very end of the movie, <laughs> we see Teddy slash John Edward Gamble say to him, like, he gives him two separate stories. He says, like, basically tells him, you are Sammy Jenkins. You couldn't live with the fact that you killed your own wife, that you gave her a bunch of insulin and killed her. And so now you've created this mission so that you have a purpose, so that you, because your mind couldn't justify that, snapped and now you need to believe something else is true. And then, but I think that's a load of BS. I don't believe that because um, we get a key element from the, um, at the beginning of the story, a, a picture of Teddy that says, don't believe his lies. Yeah. And I think that's kind of a nod from the storytellers, the filmmaker, director to us, telling, like, us. telling us, the audience, don't believe Teddy's lies. The story- no matter how convincing they are. Yeah, the story as a whole, is so confusing because of Teddy's lies. And when you look at it from outside, um, Teddy basically is a war for, it's a war for control over Leonard between Teddy and Natalie. Both of them are using and manipulating him because of his disability, utilizing, Teddy uses Leonard to kill Jimmy Grants and Natalie then uses, uh, Natalie we think, we think uses Leonard to kill uh, John Edward Gamble or Teddy. But come to find out at the end of the story, Leonard is the one who aimed himself at Teddy because he was upset with Teddy. He gave himself this new mission. He believed, believing he needed this purpose, he accepted his lot in life, accepted 
maybe some of what Teddy said is true. And he sets himself on Teddy, puts Teddy's license plate as one of his facts. And he said, well, the name already matches, might as well go after you. So there's actually no way that Natalie could have known he had any connection with Teddy. So Natalie didn't, didn't take that. She didn't know what Teddy looked like. Earlier in the movie, she, all she knows... This is so. Here's some confusing parts that I'll bring up and see if you can help. I me. need to rewatch this movie. <laughs> <laughs> We're back. Our our cameras have a 30 minute record limit, and we went right past that. So let's just take a deep breath, recollect our thoughts. This movie is very complicated. And we want to say thank you to our audience for watching, supporting. We post new episodes every Monday and Thursday. We're on YouTube, Spotify, and everywhere else. You're on social media. We are there. Let's jump right back into the movie. Where were we at? Okay, so Teddy tells him, Teddy tells Leonard that he was Sammy Jenkins, but then right after that, which is <laughs> makes it more confusing, Teddy sits down and says, no, I was the original cop on your case. I helped you find justice. I helped you get Jimmy G. Look at this picture. This is the picture I took of you, and we see Leonard covered in blood, and he said, look how happy you are. I just wanted to create that happiness. You know, this is when you killed the real John G. I helped you find him, and I've been trying to recreate that for you since. So basically, Teddy's been aiming... He claims he's been aiming Leonard kind of like a gun at other targets. And he says, you don't know how many times you do this. You don't know how many cities you've been in, how many John G's there's been. So Teddy is opportunistically taking advantage of, advantage of Leonard. He seems, he, he seems to be a real cop. That's the thing that makes me believe, makes me target in on this one story from Teddy. Because Leonard takes his badge out of his wallet and says, oh, you are a cop. And Leonard has experience with cops from his time as an insurance agent. So I think he would recognize a real badge. So it... Teddy wasn't a snitch like he claims to be at one point. And I think that keys in on the story where Teddy story tells him where he says, I was the original cop on your case. You killed John G. I've been so then he's been abusing him since. He's been he's now aimed him at Jimmy Grants to take out Jimmy Grants because there's this deal set up where Teddy's supposed to get all these drugs from Jimmy Grant. And there's a bunch of drugs and money in the car that Teddy wants. The parts that I start to come into question with this story that I think is the main truth is that Teddy seems to be going after the car throughout the rest of the movie, right? He's like, oh, you left the car out in front of the tattoo shop. Let me get the keys so I can move it for you. you can't, we can't leave it out there, which at the time we think is because whatever happened to Jimmy Grant's. I mean, Leonard took his clothes, took his car. It looks suspicious of him having the car out there. But maybe it's he's trying to get the car because all Teddy's after that time is the money and the drugs. Uh, but there's a point later in the movie where... Leonard comes outside and Teddy's already sitting in the car. He says, you shouldn't leave the car unlocked. Couldn't he have just taken the money and drugs? I mean, I guess maybe in broad daylight, he figured he couldn't get away with all that. He needed the keys to the car to get away. Yeah, maybe he's, that's also, he's also going to the apartment all the time, too. So even if Leonard brought the money into the apartment, like Teddy's been there and knows where to go and can get it there. It just seems like it'd be easier to trick him. But he does try a few times. If you remember, he tries to bring him into a different car. And at the beginning and he says oh ha ha you think it's funny making fun of someone's disability and shows him the key the picture this is my mm -hmm. car uh, which is the jag and he like he tries to get out the car like multiple times throughout the film and he, he makes a joke about stealing dodd's car like and he's like no we're not doing that but he i need to watch this movie again and see what i pick up yeah there's all these small details yeah. but i think that's the main true story is that he's been abusing him and then we think that natalie's taking advantage of Leonard and using him to get Teddy because she's trying to get Teddy the whole time. She knows that Jimmy G was going to meet up with Teddy and Jimmy never came back. So I think Natalie's trying to get a hold of Teddy, get a hold of that money and drugs. Natalie still seems very self-centered. I don't think she's necessarily like super in love with Jimmy Grants and trying to avenge him. But I think she's very self-centered because she still sleeps with Leonard, even though Leonard showed up in Jimmy's car and showed up in Jimmy's clothes. Good looking guy. <laughs> I don't think it's necessarily that simple, but I think she gets off on taking advantage of him and controlling him. She knows that she says to him, like, I'm going to I'm going to tell you, screw you to your face and I'm going to turn around and make you do my bidding. And so I think that um, Natalie is op also opportunistic, also self-serving. She just wants Leonard in her corner. She uses him to take care of Dodd, even though originally that's not what he wants to do. Like she knows that she can aim him just the same way that Teddy can aim him. Only we think the whole time that Natalie's finally switched things around and she's like, oh, I got this fake documents from the license plate he gave me and I can get him to kill Teddy. But come to find out at the end of the story, she doesn't know what Teddy looks like or who Teddy is, but Leonard aimed is the, like, con the 
architect of his own fate. He he aimed himself at Teddy. He did the license plate, you know, that ultimately leads him towards him. Like that we find out at the very end that his name is John Edward Gamble and not Teddy. You know, Teddy's a nickname that his mom used to call him. So it, it's just really interesting. I think that's the the route that the story takes us on. Ultimately, that's the truth that I would say, if you ask me, what is the actual objective truth of the movie Memento? You could argue there's no moment objective truth because memory is inherently subjective. But I would say if I had to pick one, it's that Teddy helped him find the killer. It's the only example I could find for why there's he had a picture of uh, Leonard covered in blood smiling, helped him find the killer for whatever reason he got naked and killed the guy and covered him, bathed in his blood and just wearing his underwear. I think it's a little sadistic for this, this <laughs> guy who seems a little bit more sympathetic, but hey, whatever. Um, and then he um, aimed himself at, at Teddy in the beginning and then ultimately just comes to kill Teddy, who is a person who's he's villainous. He's taking advantage of him, but he's not the real John G. The real John G is probably already dead. It's probably not Jimmy Grant's either. Just a massive coincidence. I thought I was solving this mystery for the first time watching. I was like, she said her boyfriend's name is Jimmy. I bet his last name starts with a G because the one tattoo doesn't just say, this one on his chest says John G. Great and killed my wife. Yeah. But then he has a tattoo, I think, on his arm that says, John G. And then under it, it says, or James. And then Jimmy is a nickname for James. So I was like, oh, I figured it out. But you don't really, you, I don't think you really can figure it out to the very end of the, this movie. <clears throat> yeah, you, you really can't. And it's written like that kind of on purpose. So I was watching another interview with Christopher Nolan and he at this interview or festival or whatever, where he played the movie afterwards, he got up and explained what he meant by it all and explained his truth behind the movie and then someone i forget who it was told him one of his friends or something told him like you can't do that because the perception that someone else develops throughout the movie is their perception and now you're coming in and telling them this that is the right wrong way. yeah so you have to make your movie and then let everyone else kind of put all the pieces together that you laid out there yeah so i didn't go back and watch and try to find what nolan's like his thought process was but that'd be cool to yeah. to see what he was thinking i'd like to know that too and i specifically didn't watch or read at this time any explanations or anybody else's perspective of what happened on the movie because i didn't want that to try to like alter my interpretation when yeah. we talked about it here i didn't want to cheat yeah there's a lot going on and like again i literally just watched this movie last week and i feel like i haven't even seen it <laughs> <laughs> what did you think about my explanation was it was my explanation overly complicated? Did you agree with my perspective? No, I. your explanation was like jogging my memory of like certain scenes that I would like kind of get lost when I was recounting the movie in my head. Um, but I'm sure there's like some pieces in there still that like maybe I could see differently or maybe I did originally see differently, you know, but I'm just kind of losing myself mm -hmm. in the, the, the music, yeah. you know, of the, of the song. Who do you think was on the phone with him? In the black and white scenes christopher nolan <laughs> <laughs> i think it was teddy yeah I, I felt like it was too and like when i was watching the movie that's that's the thought that i was getting yeah because when he comes up to him in the lobby he says oh you must be john edward gamel um like you must be lieutenant or whatever because he knows he's a like detective or cop mm -hmm. and teddy kind of gives a side eye to the front desk guy at the hotel which I think is just because he doesn't want other people to know his real name or know he was there. Yeah. So he, I think he is the person, he is the cop, he is John Edward Gamble, he is the person on the phone because he had intimate knowledge of the phone conversations. He knew all about Sammy Jenkins. He knew that the guy was putting the uh, envelope through the door to get him to, or under the door to get him back on the phone. Like he, uh, he knew specific details from that and, and seemed to be like, that's not just another way that Teddy was like controlling him, preying on yeah. him. Um, our next category uh, that we go over is the creators in front of and behind the camera. So we've kind of already touched on a few just in like our synopsis of the story. But Andrew, who is in this movie? So the star is Guy Pierce as Leonard Shelby. Carrie Ann Moss plays Natalie. Uh, Carrie Ann Moss, also widely known for being Trinity in The Matrix. Mm -hmm. uh, Joe Pantoliano is Teddy, also from The Matrix. He got this role based off a recommendation from Carrie Ann Moss. Uh, Stephen Tobolowsky is Sammy Jenkins, and Harriet Sansom Harris is Miss Jenkins. And you hardly hear me 
read such a short cast list, but those are the main stars, and there's only 15 people listed on the cast for this entire movie. Yeah, it's a very small movie uh, in comparison to like all these other huge movies that Nolan's working on now. There's very few sets, very few yeah. cast members. The budget for this movie, Andrew, is $9 million. That's, That's it. crazy. $9 million, which doesn't sound like a lot in comparison to other movies, but... To me, and you, not a million dollars is a lot. I mean, when you look at but, IMDb, there is a significant amount of people who worked on the movie. I mean, the editing department, right. the, uh, you know, the set department, art and design department. There is a lot more people. But I think they made their budget go very far. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because the movie looks phenomenal. Mm -hmm. they, they, they didn't try to do things that they couldn't do. Yeah. You know, like they definitely stayed in their lane of possibility through what the budget would allow, you mm -hmm. know? Um, I don't know, maybe the budget was originally smaller and they ended up going over, but it seemed like everything was very grounded and well put together and well thought out in terms of like what's capable. Like they weren't reaching into things that they couldn't quite do mm -hmm. with their budget's limitations. But the box office for this movie brought in $40 million, which that's a pretty good return, I would say on a movie that had less than a $10 million budget. Yeah, no, that is, that's a really successful movie. I mean, what is it? They almost multiplied their, they multiplied by six, you know? Mm -hmm. So almost. So yeah. that's a really, no, is it, I'm thinking 7 million. That's math is way off. Yeah. It's 9 million to four, 40 four? million. Yeah. Four. Yeah. yeah they multiplied it. Yeah. They multiplied it by a little bit more than four. So Shouldn't be doing math on here. Yeah, I'm just gonna embarrass myself. This, this whole conversation is <laughs> getting more and more confusing. <laughs> that was the whole point. So that was good. That was like a parallel story. Now, now, just to increase how confusing everything is, we're just gonna take out a whiteboard and just do equations. <laughs> Let's get the quadratic formula up on the board. Okay. Um, now we have to go into our ratings, Andrew. Um, we break before out. actually we go into ratings. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I do want to get the Oscar nominations discussion in here because this movie does have two. Okay. And we normally do that earlier. Yeah, like before the, the ratings, I think. But the, yeah. this movie has uh, an Oscar nomination for uh, Best Original Screenplay and Best Editing, which the whole time I was watching it, I was like, man, this movie deserves an Oscar for Best <laughs> Editing. I can't imagine who it lost to because <laughs> this is crazy editing, filming a movie backwards and forwards at the same time. And yeah, it's really just, well done. Just for the editor to be able to yeah. keep track of like... Where's we're, where we are in this story? Yeah, and I think it's very impressive. I think it's just easy enough to understand with the editing. I, mm -hmm. I think it's just it's, it is complex, but I think the editing makes it tell a fluent story. The way yes. that these three timelines it makes it palpable, makes yeah. it to where like if you tried, you can understand this story. Yeah. You've got you know like the editing could have made this story way more complicated than it already is. Seriously. You have a timeline running scenes backwards, a timeline running scene forwards, and then like you said, a story being told within the timeline that's running and forwards. And then there's flashbacks. Also before to, that. To his accident. Yes. Inter interweaved as well. Yes. Um, which they interweave those on purpose in short bursts, short clips of his wife in order to like touch on the fleeting nature of memory, I guess, yeah. in order to make us feel like kind of getting glimpses of her the way you would a memory of a person you haven't seen in a long time. Um, they touch on a lot in the written story. They'll say like um, the image of a person uh, in your mind is kind of like a police sketch is like imperfect and uh, like missing certain details. Yeah, I feel like you can kind of see the silhouette of the person and you can like recognize the like gist of the features. But then once you try to think of like their eyes, their nose, their yeah. mouth, their ears, you know, like maybe even like were they wearing glasses? Like it all just kind of blurs together, but in your brain you can recognize them, but you don't know any of the details. Yeah, I mean, ask your like the 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 question of memory I always think of is ask yourself what color the couch is on your favorite TV show. Your fa <laughs> like if Family Guy, Modern Family, whatever show you watch that has furniture, can you yeah. do you know what color the couch is? And then you go back and you realize that it was a recliner. Yeah. Like, oh, gosh darn it. Wasn't even a couch. <laughs> <laughs> If you're wondering, listening, the color of the couch on Family Guy is purple. If you didn't think of that right away, you can't trust your memory. Um, yeah, this movie goes all over about that. I mean, they talk about how witness testimony is unreliable. He says memory can change the shape of a room, can change the color, you know? it's That's really interesting. But the editing of this movie makes it work. The editing yes. of the movie makes it so you can watch all these different timelines and you're not just turning the movie off, although it is complicated. Yeah. And then the the screenplay, it got, it got nominated for Best... 
original screenplay, basically, because the although his brother Jonathan Nolan was writing that short story, Memento Mori. I'm pretty sure he came up with the story, too, and that he was, like, telling the story to Nolan on their, like, trip. That's, I mean, yeah, he got the story by credit, yeah. so very, yeah, very possibly. But the the story, the short story itself wasn't actually published until, I think, March of 2001. So the, the movie was, came out in 2000. So that's why it's not best adapted screenplay. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. We good for our ratings now? Yes. Okay, so for our ratings, we break this down into six categories and give each category a different weight based off what we think is most important. And then we total that all up to get our score. Um, We're going to go in reverse order than what we normally do. So the first category is rewatchability. So this one is out of five points. So Andrew, if I were to ask you five times, do you want to rewatch this movie? How many times would you say yes? I like that you're doing it in reverse order. Thank you. Um, I'm kind of caught up with some of these ratings, but I'm going to say right now, for rewatchability for Memento, I'd say four, four. especially with that question. Solid. Because if you said, hey, do you want to rewatch Memento? I'd just be excited that somebody <laughs> knew that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm about it. Um, I had it a five out of five for rewatchability. And I think the main reason is because of how complex it is because each five? time you yeah i like that five. i like that respect um so because each time you watch it you get something new from it so like i said earlier in the episode that adds for me to the rewatchability factor of a movie because i want to experience it again you know like yeah. i always say like if i can go back and watch a movie for the first time it'd be zootopia because i had so much fun watching that you got all these twists that i wasn't expecting from this quote-unquote kids movie you know, now I watch it again and I still love it, but I want to experience it for the first time again. Um, and I feel like a movie kind of like this, you almost get to. Dude, the, um, so the, the rewatchability for this movie, I think is really high because of the mystery aspect that we talked about, but there is another way you can kind of watch it again for the first time. This is for people listening to the original DVD that was sold with Memento had uh, a second DVD that would play the movie in chronological order it would play the movie forward so they released that they yeah. made that yeah someone else didn't make that i always thought the fact. i thought it was originally i had thought somebody else like made it posted it to youtube yeah. but it was so but the only way you can watch it is i guess there's a series of puzzles on like the title sequence on that dvd for you to get to watch it you have to, you have to answer questions and solve no it might not be a series but you have to answer questions and solve a puzzle so i think it's questions related to the movie which try to force you to watch it in its intended order first that's wow it's pretty pretty interesting. I mean, Chris, well, Chris Nolan's that guy. DVD. Uh, me too. Me too. <laughs> but would you would you if you were to rewatch it? Would you want to watch it and watch it in that order? I would want to watch it the way that it is at least one more time first, and then I'd be cool with watching it in the chronological order and seeing if like maybe I picked up on something different. Yeah, but it's re- it's rewatchable because even watching this movie two or three times, you still you yeah. still miss stuff unless your memory is. Yeah. Perfect. Well, I mean, you've said that you watched it back to back, back when you were in school. I didn't feel and, like I knew, and, yeah. And you watched it this last past week, and it still seemed like you had a bunch of questions. I do saw new questions you know, that yeah. I didn't even have before. And that's exactly. what, I think that's a hallmark of a really good movie. Yes. Um, okay, our next category is also out of five points. It's set and character design. I'll go first on this one. I gave it a three out of five. Personally, I gave it a two. I didn't feel like there was anything special or groundbreaking in the set design. I'm impressed with the way that they, what they were able to accomplish on such a little budget. Also, this goes further up and we'll talk about it more maybe, but the cinematography helps carry the set design in this movie, in my opinion, by controlling what you see, cutting off edges. So you're confused when the scene starts. You don't always know where you are, just like him. Yeah, I I did the same thing. I I had it originally at like a 2.5, but then I was like, you know what? I'm just going to give it a three. Because they did so much with so little. Yeah. And it's not so bad to be distracting either. So it's yeah. not like a one. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, it's just okay. normal. It just looks like the real world. Right. The next category is out of 10. So we value this category a little bit more in terms of what makes a movie. And that is sound design. What did you give it? Sound design, I gave it a seven. I actually think the score is pretty good. Um, it has like a somber tones to it. It kind of feels like emotional. I just don't think it feels like iconically memorable. Like you don't, I don't have yeah. it in my head. Yeah. When I was rewriting this before we started film or writing out my scores before we started filming this episode, I was thinking through of sound design. And I was like, 
I don't overly remember it. Like it doesn't stick out that big to me. So I also gave it a seven because it didn't it didn't distract me from the movie at all. You know, kind of like what you said with the set design, character design of this last one. Uh, it didn't take me out of the movie at all. So I thought a seven was fair. Uh, ready for our next category? Yes. All right. Our next category is one of my favorites, and that is cinematography. This one is out of 10 points. So this kind of encompasses everything that goes into cinematography. So that's composition, lenses, lights, um, editing, special effects, VFX, if there are any. Um, so that kind of basically everything or anything that you see in the film, we have encompassed in this category of cinematography. What'd you give it? I gave it an eight out of 10 because I feel like the only thing it's lacking for me is like creative camera movement. I feel like that's kind of necessary for that last point to two points for me specifically, because I think that a movie like Inception is like probably a 10 out of 10 cinematography. But the the super unique way that they chose to use the color grading and then the use of black and white, especially that shot where it transitions from the black and white scene when it's transitioning from the forward moving scenes into the present time or in the middle of the story, it's converging basically. They have the color filled into the frame at the exact moment the color fills into the Polaroid, which is like super creative, super cool. All that is very creative. It's just, um, there's not a whole lot of shots that I found myself noticing the movement, which the movement is my favorite part. Uh, yep. So that's kind of particular to me. What'd you give it? Yeah. And that's kind of my style when I'm like actually videoing is movement. I like fast shots, dynamic shots, you know, like not just a locked off shot. That's like maybe in slow motion or something. Cause that's cinematic, yeah. you know, like a lot of the shots were stationary in this movie, but they, yeah. like we talked about already, it did, this, it lended to the storytelling, like they'll open to a shot of him in his car really close up and you don't know if he's outside the bar, if he's outside Natalie's house, if he's outside the hotel, like you don't know where he is just like himself. So it does lend to the story. It's very good. So you gave it an eight, right? Yeah. I gave it a nine out of 10. And the reason for that is because the cinematography elevated the story. I think you're right that it didn't have a lot of like dynamic shots per se, but the, the color grade, the fact that it, like part of the story is in black and white to help distinguish from the other story that's going backwards in time. And like we already talked about how the editing, how that's like had to be very complex. You know, like I thought all of that stuff is what is going to give this score a nine. Typically what I look for, like your favorite things, movement. My favorite thing is lighting and color grade, you know, like. Um, I definitely enjoy movement too when I'm physically shooting, but something that really helps it stand out to me when I'm watching it is just like how well the scene's lit or how unique the scene is lit or something like that. And I just, I didn't necessarily get that from this movie, but since the cinematography like moved the story forward so much, I had to give it a high score of a nine out of 10. Yeah. I love, I just love movement and I like perspective. So like, I really like that top-down view shots, the aerial shots, bird's mm -hmm. eye view. I like shots that give you, like Breaking Bad does this brilliant theme of just giving you a shot from like inside, like inside a closet or a trunk or, you know, a shot from inside their microwave or something random. I, I really like creativity like that. That's just what this movie was slightly lacking for me, even though it was amazing cinematography. Yeah. And Wally Fister is one of the goats. And eight's still pretty high as well. So our next category here is also out of 10, and that is acting. For myself, I gave it a 9 out of 10, mostly based on uh, the the main trio's performance between Teddy, Natalie, and Guy Pierce's character, Leonard. Uh, the three of them, I think, just did such a phenomenal job, and and especially keying in on uh, on Guy Pierce's performance as Leonard Shelby. I mean, the calm demeanor he delivers everything and this pragmatic approach his narration has. I really like the sound of the voice. And then the perspe his perspective is never just dumbfounded confusion. It's it's like he's like used to the confusion and he he plays it off so well that he's learning like the you read on his face that he's learning new information and he's portraying this really complicated character that has like this deep love for his wife and tied in with the fact that he can never for he can never erase that pain from being so fresh. It's constantly at the surface and you can see the love in his eyes for his wife. You can see him gaining new information and learning stuff alongside 
us as the audience. He's a great surrogate audience member, and it's just a phenomenal performance. And then, isn't Teddy so great as well? Like, you don't know what to believe from this guy. He seems like he likes. He's the one Leonard. messing up the whole yeah. movie, man. He seems friendly. He seems like a friendly guy. Like you want to like him, but every time he says something, you're like, oh, that's what's happening. And then he looks at his stupid Polaroid that says, "Don't trust yeah. his lies," and you're like. What is it? What's <laughs> I, I don't. I don't understand. What if that? What if he's not lying? What if? What if the Polaroid's lying? <laughs> you know, he sounded so convincing. I gave acting an eight out of ten. I thought it was fantastic for all the same reasons that you were saying. I didn't have it at that nine or ten for me personally because I didn't leave the movie really thinking about the acting so much or the character so much as much as I did like the story of the movie. Um, kind of like conversely to maybe the the Joker's performance, you know, like I'm leaving the Dark Knight and I'm I'm just thinking about the Joker, yeah. you know, or yeah. I'm or even the Batman. Like I'm thinking about how Robert Pattinson, like, you know, portrayed the character's soul through his eyes, you know, like um, or even Detective Loki from uh, Prisoners, you know, how he created this little twitch with his eyes that he's maintaining throughout the whole movie and stuff. Um, I thought the acting was great for all the reasons you were saying, you know, showing the emotion, showing like how when he loses his memory, he starts back over fresh, you know, like you could really see that happening, like in the scene where uh, he hit her and then she left and then came back in and he's like, oh, hi, you know, like uh, really good acting in this. In this he's, movie. I think he's all three of them are so good, but I think Leonard Shelby's character, the performance is so spectacular. Um, our last category, which is normally our first category, is story. This is out of 10 points. What'd you give it? This was really tough for me to rate, but I ended up landing on a 9 out of 10. I did the same exact thing as you. <laughs> and I think the reason I can't give it a 10 is because there's just too many questions. <laughs> you know, and I, I feel like you can't give something a perfect score when you just don't really know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> 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 you tell me what happened and I'll tell you what I'm writing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but I, I don't even think we have to go too far into this category of why we gave it a nine. I mean, we've been doing that this whole episode, you know, like we just love the creativity, the unique structure. Like whenever you go watch a Nolan film, you're watching it for a unique perspective on a story. You know, like he's telling a story different than everyone else does, mm -hmm. you know, and it's a nine out of ten probably like most of his other movies so this gives me a total score of an 8.2 out of 10 uh for this movie what did your score come out to my total score is uh 7.9 which i still feel like is really low this movie hasn't in in my mind hasn't come into my contention for like one of my top 10 movies or anything like that yeah. but i feel like it definitely could be in the top 50 yeah, and it's really, really incredible. I think it deserves better than 7.9, but I guess that's my objective rating. And like top 50 sounds like, oh, that's so bad. But there's literally millions of movies. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I like, myself have definitely, um, I, I mean, I have Letterboxd. I've seen over like a thousand plus movies. So, yeah. so I mean, top 50 is pretty exclusive at that point. Yeah, that means you really like that movie, yeah. you know, but it, it just sounds like it's worse than maybe it actually is. Um, this is a rare time that I have a rating higher than you. I feel like I feel like normally you have the higher rating. Yeah, I mean, going back, I want to change, especially on a Nolan film. <laughs> I, I want to change my ratings. I'm not doing it. I mean, there's things that could teeter, like rewatchability could sure. teeter from a four to a five, but I landed on four, so I stuck with four. That's that's why I like our little system. You know, it's very it kind of takes the bias out of it, or especially recency biased. You know, like yeah. we'll go in and we're like, wow, we just watched the movie. It was freaking fantastic, ten out of ten all the way through. You know, but since we have these categories, it really helps us break it down now that we've done our ratings let's go into rotten tomatoes imdbs aaron what do you got yeah so rotten tomatoes for the critics have it at a 93 percent with 179 reviews and then the audience score has it at a 94 percent at 250,000 reviews and again that means that that percentage of those reviews were positive and that they recommend this movie so a lot of people would recommend this movie to others to watch. And to be clear, the the rating on IMDb, an 8.4 with 1.3 million ratings, that puts 
Memento in the top 100 IMDb movies of all time. It's it's firmly planted at number 54. So that's a pretty serious compliment to the movie, especially being only the second movie that no one's ever made. It's insane. That's crazy. <laughs> that's that's like perspective right there, you know. Um, oh, this, what? I'm realizing that we skipped something. When we, we went through the cast, but we didn't go over who's who is behind the camera. Oh, well, that's your fault. That's what you normally go over, man. How did, we, how did we miss that? I was expecting you to... You know why we missed that? Because we're going out of order. This no, is a parallel this is, timeline. This is, this is the Sammy Jenkins storyline <laughs> that cuts back in. Between. Yes. Um, so do you want me to go over that before you go over yeah. the... Okay. Yeah. All right. So our, we normally would have done this right alongside our cast, but um, we are going to talk we about... We normally would have done it before, but now this time we were doing it after. But this time, this time we're going back <laughs> in time to where it's going to be before where it was last time. Where we would normally so have the it. director of this movie is Christopher Nolan. We've said his name a ton. Um, we, Aaron, you, I think we already talked about a bunch of his movies, but this guy, we were just talking about it before we started filming, went on the craziest run possibly in directing history, from him directing um, Memento, which he went from Memento to Insomnia to The Prestige, great movies. Then Batman Begins, then Batman, or I'm sorry, Batman: The Dark Knight, then. He stops in the middle of there, just, you know, just casually throw out Inception. <laughs> yeah. And then goes on to make Interstellar, which and Dark Knight Rises. And then Dark Knight Rises. Like, isn't and that? And then Interstellar. Oh, yeah, yeah. But yeah. that's the most insane run of like six or seven movies, in, in my opinion, in directing history. All like within like six years. <laughs> it's wild. Well, well, it's from 2000 to 2014, if you go to as far as Inception. Yeah. Well, sorry. So, I was but, recalling our conversation from earlier where we were talking about. Uh, the Dark Knight, or no, Prestige, yeah, through like The Dark Knight Rises. That's, That's so the, insane. The 12 years. That's an six insane six-movie run. Yeah. Yeah. He's, Who else so this movie? The, we already talked about the writers. Uh, Christopher Nolan wrote it. Story credits to Jonathan Nolan, his brother. Uh, music's done by David Julian, uh, which we both agreed was good music. You know, that what didn't distract from the story. It helped helped the story along. The cinematography is by Wally Pfister, who was a longtime... Uh, you know, creative counterpart to Christopher Nolan. He did like a bunch of movies with Nolan from um, Memento, I think up until like The Dark Knight. Um, and then since then, or since The Dark Knight has ended, uh, I think Nolan started working with um, Hoyt Van Hoytema, who did Interstellar. They're both really incredible. Wally Fester is now a director. He's directed a few things. Uh, I think the main movie is Transcendence with Johnny Depp, but he's directed a few things since then. The editing was done by... Uh, uh, I think Dottie, Dottie Dorn. Um, Big yeah, round of applause. Honestly, <laughs> excellent, excellent work. But that is who is behind the camera. There we go. And now we're going to jump back to where we were. And I really don't have that much left to say. Um, but that the that this movie came out in 2000. It's rated R. It's an hour and 53 minutes. And the next thing that we would talk about first, uh, normally in our episode, is the movie summary. But we're not even going to go over that again because we just spent the whole episode going over that. That'd be a little too redundant. And now we're going to open slash close the episode with our closing thoughts. Yes. Um, overall, I need to watch this movie again. <laughs> I don't know if this episode helped me like work through the movie and understand it more or made me understand it less. And I, now I have more questions. So, I again, that to me adds to the rewatchability factor because it's still a good story. Now, if the story wasn't good and it was this confusing, then no one would want to rewatch it. Um, but yeah, I would, I'd definitely be down to rewatch this movie. What are your closing thoughts? Just to be clear, it is Dottie Dorn. Okay. Yeah. That's what I thought because I had uh, autocorrect in my notes that changed it to Bodie. And I was like, uh, mm, I don't think that was correct. <laughs> uh, but uh, for my closing thoughts, I, I was trying to think of a would you rather for this episode because that was something I'm trying to like inject mm. into our episodes just for like a fun breather in between all this, you know, analysis that we're trying to do. This, would movies. you rather have the same brain trauma that he has in this movie where you have a short term memory uh, loss or would you want to be in Inception where you're dreaming, but you don't know if you're dreaming or not? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Because see, the one I thought of was, wasn't as good. I'll tell you after I answer. Um, Inception, where I don't know. I, I would pick Inception because I think that kind of 
like the matrix as well like if you if you don't know if you don't know that it's a dream then what's the difference between reality like what's reality other than our brain's perception of reality yeah. so i would i i mean that'd be very disconcerting and it would nag at you but ultimately like if you commit to it then it's reality to you and this sounds way more torturous to me what about you yeah i think i would go the same way it's almost too easy but at the same time i feel like both of them could be torturous yeah. you know like kind of not knowing what's real but then also not knowing what's true what would be tough is not. would you rather have what leonard shelby has or be trapped in like the basement layer of dreams <laughs> the way that Cobb is in inception where it's it's just like you and then yeah. dreamscape and like you can't get out i mean the loneliness versus like the loneliness of never having new memories and being manipulated yeah, and does, does a dream ever end i mean Cobb got out mate so but, i guess maybe yeah you have to you have to bank i think it's a one in a million that he got out honestly yeah so like if you don't get out you're just there forever and ever and ever right do you age in a dream like but that? also like, you're he doesn't because there's a thing that says Cobb is technically like hundreds of years old or something like mentally he's hundreds of years old yeah so because time passes so slow for what when he woke up to it i don't know man you that get deeper in the layers that one's tough because there we go leonard, now we found the would you rather now leonard leonard seems when he forgets what he was just focusing on he seems like he comes back to this base level of just happiness or wonder you know like he he doesn't seem angry he he kind of wakes up and is like where am i what am i doing oh i guess i was doing this i'll go shower yeah but isn't you that know? inherently frustrating to wonder that i mean yeah. even if he's come to terms with that i, I think like the answer is definitely still like <laughs> let's be in the dream both of them but are still. are are potentially endless torture but at least in the dream basement layer you have a chance of getting out yes but being all possibly alone, not in this scenario though, at least at least he was with um his wife so at least he wasn't alone that definitely would it'd be so much more unbearable in this emptiness you know in isolation but leonard's also isolated in a way yeah let us know in the comments which you would rather be if you'd rather be in the basement layer like Cobb, or if you'd rather be like leonard and have anterior grade memory loss you can only hold memories for like a max of 30 minutes that's like so short could it like be like a day you know like 51st dates you know like she goes to bed and wakes up she doesn't know who she as is. as long as you don't know that's not that bad so it's got to be bad it's got to be bad my original question was would you rather have jason bourne's condition or leonard's but you'd obviously rather have jason bourne's because yeah he's he able can to formulate form new memories, memories right and form meaningful bonds and connections with the people he meets yeah i think if it was any form of like this short-term memory loss it would have to span like over a day's time to be like somewhat manageable you know, to where you can at least experience that full day. And, you know, like you're not just having to focus so hard on one thing and one thing only. Um, but then every time you go to bed, you know, like, well, this is the end for the new beginning. Make it hard to fall asleep. <laughs> it could, yeah. Or maybe you're just so exhausted from your day that you just pass right out. I don't know. Um, all right. Thank you everyone for watching our episode. We appreciate the support. We're quickly approaching our 100th episode, which is crazy. We just started not that long ago, so it's wild that we already are almost at 100 episodes. Uh, you can support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, Backseat Directing. You can also go on to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, same name, Backseat Directing, and give us a follow, thumbs up there, and maybe even a five-star rating if you like the show that helps boost us up the ratings so more and more people can hear yeah feel free to share us with, to our conversation feel free to share us with family and friends also that totally helps out a ton and yeah. and that's, that's a wrap, wrap.